netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast, where we take our passion for visual effects and bring you in-depth discussions with visual effects professionals around the world. The FX Podcast was started to give us a place to dig deep on the technical side, talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to hardworking, creative people producing amazing work. Shaders, NURBS, deep compositing, advanced research, the latest visual effects news, business issues, this is your chance to hear directly from the source from the front lines of visual effects. Today we're going to talk with a longtime friend of FX Guide, Sheena Dougal, about the film Hunger Games. We last spoke to her on this podcast about the film Sex and the City 2, and she has also appeared in several other articles on the site over the years. Sheena was at Sony Imageworks for a long time, but for Hunger Games, she served as the visual effects supervisor for Lionsgate Films, managing a team of vendors around the world, as you'll hear as we jump into this interview now with Mike Seymour speaking with Sheena Dougal. Welcome, welcome. The time has come to select one courageous young man and woman for the honor of representing District 12 in the 74th Annual Hunger Games. So I'm joined on the line by Sheena. How are you, Sheena? I'm great, Mike. How are you today? Good. It's a little while since we've spoken to you last, um, but of course you've now no longer uh, where you were at Sony, which was a terrific uh, career, but you're now heading what is, I believe, going to be one of the most successful franchises moving forward. So congratulations straight out of the gate. Thank you very much. Yeah. This, is, uh, this is a film that uh, is terrific in the sense that it's a film based on original material from a, a book that people just genuinely love. In many respects, it's old-style filmmaking, right? You don't remake and remake films or, or just reimagine them. You actually get a good piece of source that people love and make a film that people genuinely want to see. It's, it's remarkably refreshing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, really. You know, it was quite inspiring for me as well, you know, when I first um, became involved. It seems um, like you've been fairly faithful to the books as well. Pretty faithful, Gary. I mean, Gary and Suzanne wrote the script together. And um, Gary, I think the only thing that he added was the, uh, was the game center. Right, which I'm going to talk about because I loved that game center. Um, but the film, let's, let me just tell you, from, from watching it, um, it didn't feel like a super effects-heavy film because... There were obviously set in the future. There were some big, um, you know, wide stuff, but there wasn't lots of what it seemed like gratuitous flying around shots. Um, there was even a shot, for example, when they they're going into a transport where they get injected with their um, with their mm-hmm. tracking devices. That it almost mm-hmm. felt like you didn't even bother cutting to a wide shot. You just sort of kept it pretty tight and it just kept moving along. Um, yeah. And yet you did quite a lot of effect shots. How many shots in total did you do? We did twelve hundred shots in twenty three weeks. That's that's a lot of shots. Yeah, it was uh, it was an almost impossible task. Now let's set this up in terms of the the franchise, because even though it's going to be we know huge, it's tracking through the roof. Um, it's going to make uh, uh, Twilight look uh, positively uh, like a small indie film. The fact is, though, this isn't a film that's coming with hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of budget. This is a a way of working that's obviously successful for for a filmmaker and particularly for a studio, which is to get some really good material, but then make especially first one out of the gate, under a pretty tight constraint. You, you didn't have a, a, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to work with, did you? I didn't. I had a very, very restricted tight budget, um, which meant that we had to, I mean, we, all, we had to work really hard and we had to come up with, um, you know, creative solutions to make up for the lack of time and money that we had on this project. Now, which vendors did you go with uh, that worked for you? 
Um, you know, uh, I was trying. I was adding these up before I got online with you, and um, we had 17 vendors, all in all, wow. uh, on this project. And we started out with a couple of, because um, uh, just a couple of vendors that we thought we could manage most of the workflow with, but. Because we only had a certain time, amount of time to finish the shots, you know, and, and I felt like we were really asking um, the vendors to do something that was, you know, really difficult, um, almost impossible for them. So um, after the trailer was released and we got more hits on Google that day, Lionsgate was so excited when they saw the film that they immediately announced sequels. And at that point, they were willing to spend more money. And so... Um, we decided to hire some extra vendors to take some of the pressure off the existing vendors. And then, you know, it was kind of remarkable to see all of these vendors working. You know, I mean, we had vendors all over the world. We had people who were working, like, individually within their home environment. And everybody was interfacing together. Everyone was sharing assets. Just managing it was was an enormous task, and I had an incredible crew of visual effects coordinators who were just basically uh, spending all of their time uploading, downloading stuff through Aspera, um, and then we would do sessions with the vendors via Cinesync, and we would talk via Skype, and we would do it multiple times a day, and then we had an incredible editorial staff who you know were just keeping on top of the cut and the counts and getting the vendors all the information that they needed. It was kind of a mammoth task. But our vendors in, um, to actually answer your question, our vendors in um, uh, during principal photography, we had um, Legacy Effects uh, did Mutt Design for us. Um, Gentle Giant did our scanning for us. We had Halon who did Previs um, for us. Then, um, you know, we had a plethora of, um, concept artists who were coming up with concept designs for all of the design that had to happen throughout the movie because, you know, you've got the game center, you've got all of the announcer's booth um, shots with Caesar Flickerman. Um, you have uh, uh, screens throughout the whole, in, the entire movie, you know, and we needed to kind of come up with designs on how a lot of this stuff looked. Um, then when we got into post, we were working with hybrid in Montreal um, Rising Sun in Australia. We had um, Proof here in LA who did all the post biz for us and they just did an absolute stunning job. Um, we were working with Clear Cut Effects, um, which is uh, headed up by Christian Boodman, who I had worked at um, Imageworks with for years, a very talented compositor. Um, we had our in-house team and then we added uh, some other vendors. We, we, we actually worked with ILM as well for some concept design and they helped us with a, our temp screening deadline. Um, then we added Pixamundo um, and Witherman Hughes and we had a couple of other vendors, Spypost and Whiskey Tree, who did uh, you know, small uh, projects for us. Um, that- did, you, did you ever have any point in the day that you could comfortably sleep that wasn't some vendor wanting to talk to you? Uh, yes, actually, yeah. I mean, it, it, it worked out quite well. Really? Um, in the end, yeah. We got into a really good rhythm. It was actually very difficult to begin with um, and obviously difficult because we had vendors um, globally and so, you know, in Canada they would be up before us in the morning and in Australia, you know, they'd be a day ahead and they'd be sort of getting in at 
towards the end of our day. But we, we, you know, somehow we managed to figure it all out and, and just get a sort of working schedule where we would CineSync at certain times of the day or we'd CineSync. If they had a question, we'd just hop on CineSync or we'd hop on Skype. Um, to say my days were full um, would, be, would be an understatement, achieved by the, the, the willingness and, and, the, and the support of all the people around me who were constantly managing all of the, the uploading and download of this data um, because obviously we had to receive all the data from the from the vendors before we could review it after i dealt with the vendors who were sort of more or less on the similar time zone i could then review all of the stuff that was coming in from australia and um and so be ready to have a sync with them around about five or six o'clock our day so i know that on set uh the, the actress Jennifer Lawrence who plays Katniss must have been in almost every shot but second to her you must have been about the busiest person or busiest woman on set because uh, uh, you would have needed to be supervising so much you know, with I, so many I, shots yes absolutely I was and, and there were definitely times where well you know uh, the other thing that's worth mentioning um, Mike is the fact that we had these budget constraints sort of meant that we were doing a lot more than we would typically do as well and we were sort of working in a more autonomous way um, as a visual effects team, um, and and yeah, you know, schedule the schedule was um, you know dictated by a lot of moving pieces, and so there were actually cases where um, we were shooting heavy, heavy visual effects during the day and at night. Like for example, when we shot the tracker jacket sequence during the day, we were shooting the mutt sequence with second unit at night. So I was wow. with first unit during the day and then I'd be with second unit at night and I'd have my visual effects, uh, crew. I'd have to kind of, you know, we split them, um, uh, into, into two parts, but there was me and, you know, at least one other person on, on my team who were, you know, working, 20 odd hours a day just to, just to cover that and so we brought help in um on a couple of sequences Actually, where, just while we're on set there are a couple of uh unexpected names in the second unit director credits um, right tell me tell me about that the unexpected names i'm assuming you mean um steven Soderberg. yes and um steven Soderberg is a very good friend of um gary ross and gary um Obviously, he was quite busy too on this movie, and so we, he he needed some second unit, um, very you know, just for the uh, District Twelve riots. Don't know if you remember that in the yep. in the movie, um, and uh, and I and he managed to um, convince Stephen to to join us and and help shoot the sequence. Um, they, they've collaborated a lot previously in the past, and I know Gary helped Stephen on his movies, you know, working uh, script problems and so forth. And it was somebody that Gary really trusted to bring in and you knew you wouldn't have to worry about that at all. So it worked out brilliantly. What Stephen shot was awesome. And also Scott? Oh, yeah, Scott. Scott Farrar um, came in and he uh, joined us to be the second unit director for the Avenue of Tributes parade, which, um, which was a massive, massively heavy visual effects um, uh, sequence, um, which we had spent extensive time um, planning and figuring out logistically how to actually achieve it. Um, me and Nick, um, in all my spare time on uh, on set, I would be on the phone with Nick, um, working to you know 
can try and figure out how to because um, we inherited a previs um, for that sequence, and uh, it was it was very complicated to figure out how to shoot that previs within the confines of the location that we had. Um, we were shooting at the Philip the Philip Morris factory in Charlotte. Um, used to be the Philip Morris factory, which are, they also shot Homeland there. Well, um, and um, anyway, I digress. So Scott came out to 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 second unit. Um, direct that sequence and he also did some of the other uh, crowd stuff in the train station Um, because I was actually with first unit um, uh, doing the the game centre we were shooting the the game centre the control room at the same time and so Nick was also out there Uh, Nick Nicholson came out um, and so he was he was sort of standing in for me and working with Scott to sort of help um get that sequence achieved while I was in the game room. So let's discuss that sequence because for many fans of the book um, and certainly uh, interestingly for many people that have just seen it, the the sequence that you're describing, the parade uh, sequence is spectacular but obviously requires a lot of uh, visual effects work. It's one of the sequences that you, you know, you know inherently must have visual effects work because for a start you've got two actors that would otherwise be on fire and, and a large crowd sequence. How did you approach doing that and, um, how much was that shot-for-shot uh, shot sort of previs down? It was previs out shot-for-shot, um, shot, um, absolutely. Gary did it um, directly with um, with Halon before I joined the project, and he was very happy with what he had previs, and so you know, the task was figuring out how to actually um, achieve that previs within the, constra- the constraints of... Uh, that we were working with, one of which was we actually, um, when you watch the sequence, there are 12 um, uh, chariots with horses, and in reality, we only actually had uh, six. And so we had to figure out, you know, how we how we do, how we shoot all of the multiple passes so that we can achieve those shots. We had to, we, we were working with children and animals, so we had constraints there with you know where the camera could be relative to the horses so we didn't spook them and then because it was a sequence we were shooting at night we had uh, con- time constraints on the children like how long late they could actually stay up so we only had a certain period of time that we could shoot with them and we only had a few days to shoot the entire sequence then the other um, complications were um, just the logistics of getting one person into uh, costume and makeup took an hour per person. And so in order to achieve that, the, the the production brought in, I think, 70 hair and makeup people wow. who were just, you know, we just had this warehouse full of people um, who were doing hair and makeup and then, you know, obviously massive number of people also in the costume department. And, um, and what 400 people gave us was about 150-foot run. And um, that, that gave us about four rows deep of people on a 150 foot run. And so like what Nick and I did was we sort of fig, we tried to figure out like what was the minimal amount of distance that we could actually work with to achieve what we needed to based on the previous. And we sort of came up with this, okay, 150 is going to cover us for most of the shots. 
um, because obviously you didn't want to be getting into doing digital people that close to camera. But the grips, I mean, I'd actually worked with um, Guy Micheletti's Dragon Grips in Morocco previously. And, you know, I've got to say he's one of the, one of the best in the business. And so they built these incredible, um, you know, green screen setups for us where we had a big stadium. And then, you know, we had a 150-foot-long green screen. Um, and then that was by about 20 feet high. And then we had a breakaway piece that we could put um, in, in and have the crowd be in a different configuration so we could have them be 13 rows deep and, and shoot some other, um, other types of shots where we had, uh, you know, more coverage, where we needed more coverage in, in the crowd. And then they also built us a, um, we had a 80 by 40 green screen, exterior 80 by 40 green screen, um, which allowed us to get some of the wider shots that entails a lot more than I realized when I said I need a 80 by 40 foot green screen. I went out there one day and they had, you know, these, they brought in, I don't know how many massive shipping containers, but, you know, they couldn't just stack the shipping containers on top of each other to cover the 80 by 40. They had to then stack, um, sort of gradate the shipping containers behind the first set of shipping containers to make the whole thing safe. And so it was kind of epic, really. And, the, and, the, and they, did, they did an incredible job. It's um. It was also. I just want to touch on like because they a key part of that is the the two uh, heroes from Section Twelve are on fire with these flaming suits. How did you do that? Yeah, um, that was all achieved in post. Um, we did. Um, well, we we broke out when we were planning that sequence and figuring out how to shoot it. We broke out the shots where you don't see the horses, and we basically called those process shots. And so we put our actors onto uh, up against a green screen. We actually shot those on a stage inside. There were quite a large number of those shots where we were able to actually rig a, um, a lighting rig that would give us some interactive lighting on our actors when we were on, you know, shooting the shots um, that were the process shots. But for, for the actual exterior shots where we had horses and chariots and stuff, where we, we, uh, weren't able to do that and so it was all achieved um by rising sun they did an amazing um job i think achieving uh the look that gary uh was was it was looking for did, and did, that, did they also do her second flaming dress when she's uh on set of the i'm gonna call it tv yes. show yeah yes yes and and they and they basically developed that in houdini and, okay. and we started out with um you know, we had a we had a model of the environment. It was actually based off of the model that we had done the previous with, and then and then we started to build the city and see what this you know build what the city looked like. So that was sort of based on a lot on the model and a lot of the. Do you, concept do you mean a CG model? Because I have seen a mock up. Yes, yes, I mean a CG model. Right. Okay. Because I think publicity released a, a still of a. Uh, maybe it was a model just for working out what the logistics were going to be, but you didn't have a miniature shit on this, did you? No, not at all. No, no, everything, everything was either shot as a plate or it was a, a, a CG 3d, um, with massive digital crowds. And I, you know, I think one of the things that's worth mentioning, um, is there were thousands and thousands of hours of rotoscoping of the CG horses in their shadows because we had to replace the ground that um, the chariots were right. around. <laughs> um, no, nothing's ever simple. No, nothing's ever simple. So, you know, um, all of the lights and all the lighting in that sequence is CG. Um, 
but uh, you, and, and 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 also the atmosphere atmospheric effects which i thought were really important you know to help the sequence were developed in houdini now you're going to revisit fire once they all get in the game because uh, the game controllers literally use fire to redirect the uh the um contestants basically back to the same kind of space to re-engage now there must have been some practical flames there but i imagine for safety reasons not not that much yeah you know i actually love that sequence it's really such a great storytelling piece um you know just showing how the game gamekeepers control um the the uh, the tributes in the game, we, we, you know, interestingly enough, we were actually given permission to set the forest on fire, but we didn't. <laughs> because it's hard to do a second take. <laughs> Possibly, um, you know, they did control burns, and so we, we, you know, we we actually could have. But um, we, Steve Cramer was our uh, special effects um, guy, and he um, designed something with pipes that sort of looked like trees. You'd be surprised how much we were actually able to get practically in that sequence. But one of the things that happened was, you know, it was all very overexposed on film. So we did end up going back in afterwards and adding a lot of detail into the fire. But what is worth mentioning is that there are two big, wide um, cable camera shots um, that we used in the Wall of Fire sequence that were not actually shot for that sequence. And they're cable cameras of Katniss running you know, uh, uh, the, with the with the wall of fire chasing her, right? Um, and they were they were they were shot for something else. And then when when Stephen Mirioni, um, one of our two main editors, uh, the other editor was uh, Juliet Welfig. Stephen felt like when he cut the sequence together, he needed a couple of wide shots. And so when those shot when those plates were shot, we weren't even there. Visual effects wasn't there. So you know, we gave hybrid this. Uh, this sequence and then we added these shots and we were like uh, sorry we don't have any HDRIs and we don't have any camera data and we don't have any tracking markers and and so that was really very very difficult for them and what they ended up doing was um, they created all of the digital fire and Maya and they basically rebuilt most of the original forest plates with in 3D using XSI with some of their own um, in-house plugins Wow. And so, because because obviously, you know, rotoscoping the CG fire through like trees was just going to be really difficult and really impossible. And um, we should probably count how many times I'm using the word impossible and <laughs> <laughs> find another word. Um, uh, really, you know, it was really very difficult. And there was movement in the trees and so forth. And so they built trees, leaves, the underbrush to match exactly the original photography. And then when they added CG fire, they were able to composite the CG uh, vegetation back over and it allowed them to avoid really tedious roto, but also, um, you know, it allowed them to do something with the fire that we were really specific about wanting. Gary was really specific about wanting, which was like he wanted, we wanted to see the fire like, you know, light a bush up or light a tree up or we wanted to actually see it travel through the undergrowth and be burning things you know, rather than just sort of wiping through the environment. And, uh, you know, and then on top and lay- layering on top of that are all of the, um, the embers, the ashes, the heat effects, smoke, you know, just just the added difficulty of um, finding the right balance for that. 
um, in terms of, you know, it's something that's shot during the day and, you know, the light uh, fire looks beautiful against black or, you know, fretted and dark. But I understand there are also some, uh, because there are these fireballs that are thrown at her to direct her, I understand that some of those were actually done with a steel cabled flash cloth kind of rig. That's Um, right, yeah. So did you have to remove the rigs on that, or how did that work? Well, yeah, I mean, there was an extensive amount of rig removal throughout this, the film as well. Um, but, uh, you know, for the, we did do that, and for the most part, we ended up replacing that those with CG. But they, oh, really? what they did was they gave us interactive lighting. Yeah, because um, Gary was really specific about how he wanted those fireballs to feel and look. And what we got practically, they were a bit more comet-like. They were, you know, they were they were affected by uh, the the you know the force of the wind as they were traveling forward. It was you know forcing all of the flames backwards, and so they were less of this sort of ball of fire, which is what we was looking at. And there wasn't enough detail for him. Did um, you have a similar issue when you blew up the supplies and food um, with the uh, apples rolling down on the on the mines? Was that a combination of you and practical, or how did that work? Yes, yes, that was a combination of uh, Steve did uh, a great practical effect, and then we um, and we rigged up um, Jennifer's double, her stunt double, who was just you know such an incredible double of Jennifer. It was amazing because Katniss is in the front of that shot when she sort of gets knocked over by the blast, isn't she? And that was then you're saying that was the stunt double that I saw being knocked down. Correct, yeah. So we had a rig on Renee, and we, we had uh, special effects um, built some smoke cannons for us so we could uh, send some air blasts and a little bit of dust and smoke towards her. And then, you know, we had a rig that pulled her backwards, uh, comping the elements together and making these sort of split comps and then adding CG debris to that. Now, one area that I know you must have done, because it can't be done uh, for real, which was the control room. And I, I love the control room, and I, I tell you why I loved it. I love it when you have made-up tech that doesn't need a lot of explanation in that we see something, and it's immediately obvious, even though we've got no idea what the tech is, and it's clearly in the future, what's going on and what people are doing. And that control room did all of that. There was not a lot of dialogue of any consequence that was there to explain stuff to the audience, and yet everything seemed to make tons of kind of sense albeit fake logic that makes sense (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. no i am actually really proud of the of the um the control room and it was one of the um parts of the film that gary gave me a lot of autonomy um on uh working on and designing and so uh and, and i and working and also working with steven the editor to figure out like the best way for us to actually tell the story. I went to Stephen now, he reminded me of this the other day, he said, well, you know, um, you came to me really early on and said, um, you know, I think we can use a control room to help tell the story if there's, a, if there's anything that's really unclear or we can't kind of understand the relationships of the tributes to each other when they're inside of the arena. And so he just kind of took that and was like, oh, yeah, I can really, you know, help you help add to the storytelling with the control room. And I really wanted to, you know, Avatar had, was resonating in everybody's minds at that time. And I really wanted to not do something that was derivative of that. Um, and so I, I, I hired a bunch of concept artists while we were uh, 
do my principal photography. And I had a really clear idea of what it was that I wanted to achieve with this hologram. I wanted it to be something that didn't feel generic, that had a lot of dimension to it, I, like, like an organic software environment that's viral and grows for itself. So it's like I wanted the information to feel like it was branching out onto the desktops of the gamekeepers mm. and that it could it could be sort of like a living center of the game and, and sort of godlike and omniscient sorry omniscient and omnipotent in its behavior and but like also brain like where we see all these synapses of information being generated while we have this olympian view of the children in the game and 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 like and the way that I described it to the concept us was like it's like a symphony of information, and I wanted it to feel like a digital digital organism, if you like. And I, and and I think we could have taken it a lot further if we had more time and money to achieve that. But but it did um, help a lot because it sort of told us that the dome, so we no longer questioned why there was stuff up in the sky when they were explaining who had gone, and but it also explained a lot about how these creatures could suddenly appear without anyone having to explain them a lot. And that, and that was very intentional in, you know, in our minds. It's like, you know, we really didn't want to have to explain. Like the Mertz, for example. Yeah. We had a lot of conversations about this. Gary was saying, you know, sort of quite rightly, how do you, how do you get compelled by these characters to just sort of appear at the end of the movie? You know, and we wanted to, we wanted to find a way to introduce them without having to explain specifically and exactly what they were. And so... You know, the game room was a really you know, great opportunity for us to be able to do that. And, you know, real, there was a real economy there because you had the words genetically engineered to do with the wasps, right. but right. then you didn't have to then reintroduce that again. It was almost at every point there was like a real economy of the amount of information that would be needed right. so you could make sense of it all. Right, and we spent an enormous amount of time. You have no idea how much time we spent um, on just the content of the graphics, what the content of the graphics need to be, and how the content of the graphics actually aid and help in telling the story. And, um, you know, we worked absolutely hand-in-hand with the editorial team and with Gary in order to sort of solve these problems. Like, Stephen Marioni would sit in... um, almost every vendor review that I had because so many questions would come up about story. So many questions would come up about like how, 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 how an element was supposed to work or how we were, how we were going to address a particular kind of nuance. And it was important for him because of the time um, constraints that we had, you know, once the movie was locked, he actually had time to, um, you know, come and spend with me and, and, and sort of, you know, help be part of that process, which was enormously helpful. And I think you see it on the screen. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a real economy of how much of that train in the city you see. In fact, I was almost sort of expecting that to be the preliminary shot when they first see the city from the train. And then I was expecting a, a long lingering shot, you know, to come a, a few moments later. And it, right. it didn't happen. It's like, well, we've got that there's the city there. Let's get on with the story. Um, but right. was there- and- and and also, Mike, though, like the whole the whole rest of the movie wasn't shot that way. So even if you had like cut in a long lingering shot, it didn't work with the way that the rest of the movie was cut and the rest of the mechanisms for the storytelling, which was this sort of really interpersonal way of telling the story. Now, if somebody's meant to not work with children, they're not meant to work with children and animals in particular, and you had to have uh, younger actors uh, yeah. doing all sorts of things, including. Um, hunting down wildlife uh i can't imagine it was easy for example to be shooting uh 
arrows at deers. That right. would, didn't look like an effect shot, but I assume it must have been. Yes, yes. All of the arrows, all of the weapons that are shot are... Were the animals any deer? point CG? Yeah, well, um, for the most part in that deer sequence, they they weren't. Um, there's an interesting story behind that. We, we were... Um, planning to shoot de- uh, a live action deer for that sequence and um there, there was a particular deer uh species that it needed to be and that species didn't exist in north carolina so we would we our thought was when we come back to la we would have a little visual effects shoot and we would shoot the elements that we needed because obviously we needed to see we needed to kind of cut it in order to have some sense of what it what it needed to be as well. And so we got back to LA and and um, we discovered that it was actually really very difficult to train a deer. <laughs> we found out that ILM had some footage um, from um, Super Eight where they had shot a uh, live action deer. And so we got in touch with them and we and we asked them if we could take a look at the footage and we looked at the footage and. We, we, Chris Camp and I sat down and, um, and we sort of looked at some pieces and we gave them some suggestions for takes that they could use um, to actually make the sequence work. And we got a rough cut at that point. Um, and, and I think there was sort of that, you know, they thought we were a little bit crazy asking them to do this, but um, it actually worked out really well. So they took this footage and they, um, they jerry-rigged it basically uh, for our temp. And then there's only one CG deer shot in there, which is the close-up of the deer nose. Oh, the extreme close-up on the deer's nose? Yeah. Well, that, that cuts in really well. That doesn't look CG at all. Yeah. Um, now, that was – that was um, so at that point, um, ILM was doing a little bit of work with helping us with concept design and temping shots. Um, and then um, – they couldn't. They didn't actually have the capacity to do the shots themselves, and so. But they, but they subcontract a lot of work out to Pix and Mundo that they then supervise. And so Scott Farrar, who is you know who I adore, and and was fantastic to have uh, with us um, on the set, um, came on board and he um, worked with uh, with Pixar. Now, obviously. The actors were terrific, and there's a great ensemble of people uh, in addition to the to the leads. But they are younger, some of them. I mean, how did you go? Clearly, you couldn't give them weapons, and they couldn't be throwing weapons at each other. You must have added those. But how did you go with eye lines and stuff? Did you have any problems? And for example, you've got characters that are being chased by mutts. You've got spears and right. things flying right, left, and center. Right. Did you have to do any work to get eye lines to work as you started introducing CG things? Because they they just wouldn't have had anything to look at, would they? Right. Well, in 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 a lot of cases, it wasn't really a big issue with the with the weapons because they'd have an actor, even though they even though the weapons were added afterwards to CG, the actors were actually there, and so that was less of an issue. Um, and the and the style of cutting um, was definitely helpful to us in that regard. But for the mutt sequence, for example, yeah, I mean, obviously we we had um, cardboard life-size cardboard cutouts of the mutts and then we also had a displacement suit that legacy made for us and we also had some rather ugly green screen suits which the um which the stunt team donned much to their um, embarrassment and and would run around and and pretend to be mutts and actually act as mutts and and in the end we we sort we sort of 
didn't really use the displacement suit that we'd created and we just had stunt, um, stunt guys in green screen suits uh, interacting with the actors. At the end of that sequence when they turned the lights on, were, and I noticed the shadows were moving across the ground and stuff, was that all just uh, done as a grade or did you have to do work on that environment? It was done as a – well, it was essentially done as a grade, but, you know, it was it was a complex uh, – problem to solve and it required multiple mats to you know enable us to create that yeah because uh suddenly you went from no contrast to high contrast kind of lighting um it's hard to uh to do that actually it was something that our in-house team did they did a good good. job uh, of that actually um but you know we went we did a lot of iterations on a lot of this stuff until we actually um in, in, in amazingly in the short period of time that we had. Um, so it seems to me that uh, at the beginning of the project, you didn't know that the film would necessarily be greenlit for sequels. I think there was even publicly right. that's been stated. Right. But obviously you said at some point, um, even just the advanced ticket sales are enough to justify the sequels. Was there any concern uh, or even planning done at your point? Okay, well, these are a bunch of assets we're going to need to come back to, so we're going to build anything for the future? Or is it really this film had such a, a tight budget that it had to get this film successful and don't worry about what's going to come after? We'll worry about that tomorrow. We tried as much as we could um, to worry about what was coming in the future, for sure, definitely. Because I, I feel like a lot of those assets, like I want to see more of the hovercraft, I want to see more of the train, I want to see more of those things. We didn't get to see a lot of them. There and was you will, sort of hint yeah, of them. And you definitely will in the in the future movies. No, I mean all of the all of those assets have been um, you know stored away for the for the next set of movies. And um, uh, yeah, I mean we're definitely aware that that's something. Um, we're going to need to come back to. You mentioned painting assets. Are you talking about set extensions? Because there must have been some set extensions, especially outside of the um, of the arena, as it were, like back in her Sector 12, for example. Yeah, there were an enormous um, number of set extensions. Um, like, for example, uh, the seam had set extensions. The, um, the train and the environment the train was in when it arrived uh, before the reaping had set extensions. The reaping had crowd replacement and a little bit of extensions there. Um, when you're in the Rose Garden with the President Snow, there's set extensions there. There's set extensions in the Tribute Apartments, everything you see out the windows. I found her father's death uh, flashback. I oh, presume it was a flashback. It was a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that to be pretty effective. Was that just high-speed photography with practical or was that CG? That was all photography. Yes, it was all photography except for... Um, where you see multiple fathers, right. and um, oh, that was something that Hybrid did, where they did face replacements for us on that sequence of miners that we saw walking. I don't know if you remember that shot. Uh, as the miners are going into the um, the to the lift before it blows up, you mean? Uh, no, in in her flat in her flashback. Um, yeah. It's actually after that, I believe, in context. Okay. But, but, oh, oh, <laughs> I, I apologize. I've only seen it once. So, I know. That's fine. Don't worry. Uh, I'm getting it all mixed up in my head too. But no, actually when they go into the mine shaft and the mine shaft goes down, that explosion is a CG explosion in there as well. The big explosion in the house um, and, then the, and then the sort of aftermath of that, that's all um, uh, high-speed photography um, done in camera. So a question I'm dying to ask you, knowing 
that the film looks like it's going to be hugely successful and these sequels are coming. Lessons from this moving forward, be it a sequel to this or any film like this, if you were doing this again with multiple vendors that set up the way that it is, is there anything that you, you know, you said, well, knowing what I know now, I would, I would tackle that sort of differently. And I'm not, I'm not after plot points or anything, just uh, approaches to workflow. Hmm. Well, that's, that's a very difficult question for me to answer because, because I, I mean, I think there were a lot of things I would have done different, differently in the benefit of hindsight, but there were so many moving parts that um, it's really hard to quantify. I mean, you know, in order for, for us to achieve what we needed to achieve, you know, the, the, there were so many other people that had to play their part. And, you know, there were things that were totally out of my control. Like we were really, really fortunate that Gary and Stephen locked the movie, um, you know, within the first few weeks. You know, we were doing turnovers because then we could start work on visual effects shots. We were really fortunate that we, um, you know, we put, when we did post fears because we had to, we basically temped the entire movie, 1,200 shots in, in the first uh, 10 weeks. It does sound like your your relationship to the editor is a really critical yeah. part of. Yeah, uh, absolutely. He, you know, he was he was a really really big help to us in this. And and you know, I, I think it. I think the feelings mutual. I mean, he said to me, on a, he said to me on a number of occasions, you know, we wouldn't have the film the way it is if it wasn't for all the things that you did and all the things that you thought about and the fact that we didn't have to do any reshoots um, for anything, you know, we, we felt like we covered him for everything that he needed to cut the movie. And, um, you know, there were definitely times on set where, you know, there were multiple units going on and things were being shot. And, and, and I would have my team, um, actually uh, Jackie Barnbrook, who's our visual effects producer, and Regina Carney, who was, who was our VFX coordinator on set, like basically going through um, the schedule and going through the script and sort of calling out, you know, where we might be missing something that we need because obviously, you know, we are the ones left in post. And so, you know, they would sit with Chris, the editor, and they would go through the takes every day and make sure that we were getting what we what we needed and in the cases where we weren't you know i would go have a little unit and um and we'd shoot things which and i talked to steven and uh, you know about what 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 he might need um sheena you did shoot this on film would you would that be one of the things that you would revisit if you're going to a sequel or do you like shooting this material on film because i mean i would have thought on a tight budget that was adding to your both time and uh and issues well yeah you know we did we were originally thinking of shooting this on the alexa and you know it's a it was a super 35 um two through five aspect ratio and so i i had concerns about resolution for that but i, I think it really helped us i mean i think the film looks beautiful that it's shot on film and, and we're also releasing it in imax in 300 theaters and we also you know, would get, we're able to go in and scan things at like 4K and higher resolutions when we needed to. So I, I don't know. It's it's a really hard one for me. I I love film. I love the attributes and the nature of film. I love the way light acts on film. And I just, you know, for me, like it's not quite there yet. The dynamic range um, digitally. And I'm sure plenty of people are gonna 
probably disagree. But How does it work for you as a supervisor having moved from an environment where you would know the team really intimately because when you were supervising on tons of, you know, big budget films and stuff at, at uh, Imageworks, of course, you were in, the, in that environment of being uh, with the uh, studio to the environment where you've got a lot of teams that you can't possibly know because they're distributed around the world. Do you miss that kind of, or is it is it you're running so fast you can only really deal with the people at a department head level anyway? No, I found no, I found that really difficult actually not knowing um, the individual people um, at the various different um, vendors. Yeah, because because I've always known you to be very very loyal to the people that you work with yeah. and. But you just, you know, physically just couldn't possibly know these people globally because there are just too many of them. Right. And, and you know, so I had, so I was able to know them on CineSync and on Skype, um, you know, the key people. Um, obviously, the people who were in L.A. and San Francisco, that was easy. We would have meetings and we would talk. And, it, and honestly, you know, so much easier to sit down in the room with people and have a conversation with people. And you got to the result faster oftentimes. Now, um uh, hybrid came to us, came and visited us, and we went through the whole movie with them. And they, hybrid did the game room, the control room. So you know, they, it, it was really important for us to have them come so that we could sort of sit down and really talk through the that process. Um, but there were a couple of other things that I wanted to say while I'm got while I've gone back um, to the topic of the control room, and that was one of the things that we did there with the control room was I actually hired a concept artist who I had a lot of concept artists who were experienced and I wasn't really seeing what I wanted to see. And so I uh, sort of went out on the limb and I hired um, a, a guy called Reed Southern who's not really done anything, uh, but you know, talented concept art artist. And, um, and he got immediately, you know, where, where I was trying to take um, the game room. And so um, myself and former senior production designer worked with him on, you know, just doing iterations of how, how that control room could look. And then, you know, as we got closer and closer to shooting it, um, I reached out to some of my friends who had been the supervisors on Avatar and the supervisors on Tron and sort of said, hey, you know, when you shot your, your holograms, um, did you know what the content was when you did it, you know, in terms of getting the right performance from the actors. And they were like, oh, no, we just kind of went with what was, what was shot on set. And, and, I, and I sort of felt like the way that we wanted to use this in the context of our movie, um, like bringing, like we wanted to bring the information to the desktops and we wanted to, we wanted the audience to be able to see the, uh, gamekeepers interacting with the holograms so that you could sort of... Right. So, for example, in a scene where they're going to put the artificial mutts in the game to to bring it to its climax, right. you've just got, what, green desktops for where the screens are going to be and zip, I presume. Right. And so I wasn't happy about that. And so I went to hybrid... Um, this will be one of the other times where they probably went, oh, my Lord, this is going to be crazy. And I went to, to them and I said, I want, I want, a, I want some uh, idea of what we're going to be actually, what, what, what this is actually going to look like. And, the way, and because of the budget and so forth, they weren't actually scheduled to do any of the R&D until we got into um, post. 
but they, right. they were very gracious and they helped me out. And basically, you know, I, I had a, a sort of, I had a really, a real heart to heart conversation with them where I said, you know, look, I have this concept art and I have this concept and I have this idea and I want it to, I want everything to look like it's made out of digital data. And when you look at it, when you're really close up to it, but when you pull back from it, I want it to just sort of look like an object, but sort of has an organic feeling like it's a bit alive. And they, and, and I also would like some, um, some point of reference so I can tell actors what performance they, they need to do so that it isn't just going to be this random thing when we get to post. And so they, um, they were awesome. They sat themselves down in front of a green screen table, the artists, and they filmed themselves. And then they tried different hand um, choreographies to simulate an operator working at a 3D holographic station. And then they created based on the concept art and then some, you know, and they brought a lot of graphic design and a lot of ideas to the table. They basically, you know, created a massive number of uh, quick time movies in like a really short period of time, a number of days. And, you know, we went through this and sort of, you know, I showed it to Gary. And when I showed it to Gary, Gary's like the first thing Gary said was, this is fucking awesome. Now he was just he was just thrilled with you know what they had done because all of this is allowing the actors who let's face it aren't principal actors in the film this is not you know uh, a, a lead name actor this is effectively an extra to to be able to perform that so that it would give you something to work with right so so what so what we then did was sort of go through these these uh, different performances that um, hybrid had, had come up with and then, you know, the, the relative graphics that went with them and said, okay, I think we're going to want, you know, and we sat with Gary, we're going to want sliders, we're going to want buttons, we're going to want, you know, holograms that come up out of the desk. And we sort of got, you know, obviously we had no idea what the content was at that time, but we got a yeah. grip of what we thought it was that we wanted to, um, to do. It, it looked like that the mutts came out of the ground when they put it in the game. Yes. Was that a reflection of that? Uh because, you know, I mean, that's how they sort of seemed to, when it, when it went from one to three to a pack, Correct. they felt like they came up in a way that was symbiotically linked to the action that was happening at the operator desk. Exactly. And that's, uh-huh. that's something that we, do, that we, an idea we came up with in post, um, to do, to do it that way, to introduce them that way. We had, we were planning on doing something different, but we, we, you know, we redesigned it because as we cut the movie and cut the movie and saw like the performances of the actors were so fantastic and it had such a great sense of drama, you know, we would try, we want, we really worried we walk in a fine line where we could sort of become goofy and cartoony. So, you know, we, we made some adjustments based on that, but going back to what I was saying, um, so, so hybrid created these performances and then we made, um, based off of those, we made, uh, worksheets for all the actors who were acting in the great, in the, in the game room. So we gave them little cheat sheets and we showed them, and the different hand movements like graphically that they could do. And then we sat them down as a group and we talked to them through, you know, these are the types of hand movements. This is where we want you to place your hands. This is how high we want, you know, to lift them off the desk. And, um, you know, ultimately it worked really well, I think, because, yeah, yeah. because we planned ahead, you know, some of that stuff, even though we weren't specific about what the content was at that time. 
Yeah, and no, I think it worked, it worked really well. And as I say, it had this tremendous ability to communicate what was going on without a lot of exposition dialogue, which would have been just really boring. Someone walked into the room and had the room explained to them so that we, the audience, were you know informed what was going on. We sort of pretty much knew what a lot of those actions were, even though there was no dialogue. There was nothing, yeah. um, and that, nothing ever yeah, said. Absolutely, and that's Gary's genius to, to know you know, to add that um, that control room into the script when it wasn't in the book. You know, I mean, that was just such a such a smart thing for him to do. Yeah. And did did the design looks of... Because the reflection of that is also they went fire the cannons to announce um, uh, that a tribute was dead and, mm-hmm. and you'd get that graphic up on the sky. Was all that sky plate and graphic stuff from... The tribute's point of view was all that easy to come to because that would have made a heck of a lot of roto, I imagine, but also a bit of design work. Design work we I did with Reed in um, for the most part, um, during principal photography, um, and then when we got into post, we worked with um, hybrid again. You know, and we and we did a lot of variations of how that was going to look and how it was going to work and how it was going to animate on and whether you just saw one tribute coming on at a time. We also played with the idea of, you know, multiple tributes in the sky at the same time to sort of give give you the story view that, like, gosh, a lot of them were dead at the same time. And, you know, that's the thing about working with Gary is he kind of likes to leave no stone unturned. So you're never really in a situation where, like, okay, he loves that, he's bought off on that, that's what we're doing. You know, he, he's constantly, you know pushing it to see until he finds that place that like is absolutely the right place for him. Well, for example, w- w- there's an important plot point where um, she turns around and signals uh, respect to sector 11. Um, that required us as an audience to realize there were cameras everywhere. And you sort of, there was like one shot where there was a camera in a tree trunk that said there are hidden cameras. And then it was almost like, okay, that's enough. We've got that. Right. We don't need to make that point again. The audience will remember that. We'll just move on. It was like there was a, a seemed to be a real economy. Even though the film's quite long, um, there didn't seem to be much that was repeated. It was like, you get what's going on. We're going to move on. At least it felt like that. And yet you had an early lock on the film. It wasn't like you had to keep editing that down. Well, no, and I mean, I think that was sort of, I have to I have to give credit to Juliet and to Stephen. I mean, Juliet edited um, a lot of footage during principal photography, and and Stephen joined us. Um, so you know, Juliet had already edited a lot of the film, and Stephen, you know, kept a, a lot of what Juliet had actually done exactly the way that she had done it. And um, you know, Gary was t- trying to take time between shooting the movie and and and, um, you know, getting into the editorial suite and, and approving what was done. But, you know, we, we the actors did had, were so good and they did such great performances. I think, you know, the editors got to where they needed to get to more quickly because of that. And, you know, they're obviously genius editors. And we were all conscious that, you know, it wasn't achievable if we didn't lock picture early on. There's no way. There's no way in 23 weeks that we had, if we had a you know lock picture early, that we would have been able to make our, our our schedule. So as a supervisor, having Jennifer Lawrence with experience of X Men, did that help you talk to her as to what was going on? And because there must have been sequences where she was looking at it, basically nothing, right? Because 
especially in the city, before they got on the games? Yes and no, not really, because um, there were, I mean, there were green screens everywhere, and I think she was, I mean, there was a lot of green screen and a lot of blue screen in this mm. movie, but I think that she, um, well, she wasn't phased by that as an actress, and Josh wasn't phased by that either, and it, and it wasn't about what was out there. You know, it really didn't matter. It was right. a- actually important to context of what they were doing, what was happening between them as performers and the emotion that was going on between them was the focus. And so, so not, not a lot of that with Jen. No, I mean, really a lot, mostly with the shooting the arrows. Um, cause she, she did a lot of that, um, in the movie. And then it was, you know, I was kind of relentless with her on, um, getting up and, 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 and Chad, the, the, the stunt, um, coordinator just on getting the performance where she's got to reach back lift an arrow pull it straight up load it into a bow and there's nothing there um so i think that was very hard for her and so we did it a couple of ways we did it where there would be a practical arrow and she would she would lift the practical arrow up and load it into the bow and then drop it before she brought the bow up to shoot or there'd be nothing there and she would just be trying to mime the performance because she did give some good performances. The reason that I brought that up before is like there's a sequence where she's playing with the, uh, what I presume, some kind of television type monitor screen in in her apartment, mm. and she was acting very effectively yes. to what must have been a green screen that's because. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, we had concept art for a lot for all of this as well. We made oh, sure that when we were, when we were shooting it, we did have that concept art. Um, so I think perhaps we would have shown Jen that concept art. But you know what? She's just such a stunning actress. I mean, she's really, really, really very impressive to watch and to be around. And, um, and she just turns it on. She ste- she, and, and when she's not on camera, she's like, she's just fun and she's making the crew laugh and she's being goofy and she's making fun of Gary and, you know, she... She she's she's definitely not one of these sort of character actor type people. She can just stand up there and she's she's in that character and she is that character and you don't have to give, give her any coaching really. Well, any cast that includes Lenny Kravitz is a cast I want to hang out with, but that's another matter. <laughs> well, you know, he did he did a concert for the he was performing up there, so he he invited the crew to one of his rehearsals one night, so it's kind of fun. Oh, cool. Well, look, uh, you've done a great job on that. I can't wait to see what you can do. Hopefully, they'll give you a bit more money and a bit more time on the uh, on the sequels if you're uh, if you're doing those. But uh, it's great, and congratulations on an outstanding uh, what seems to be like blockbuster bonanza that's going on globally with this film, which is just uh, extraordinary. I must admit, I did not predict this film when I first heard about it would be uh, having the kind of amazing pre-release tracking that this has. So. Um, congratulations. Uh, uh, thank you, Mike. I know it's kind of astounding, isn't it? Um, you know, I think that um, it's resonating. There's something in this story that resonates with, particularly with young people. Um, and if and, and before I started on the movie, I sort of re- did some research and read some interviews with Suzanne and what talk, where she talked about what she was inspired by when she wrote the books. And she said she was watching television. She was flipping between the Iraq War and reality TV. And, you know, that just was kind of really surprising to her. And, and that's what gave, inspired her and gave her this idea to write the books. And I think, and this is just my opinion, right? But I think the books are, um, and the film, 
are, um, you know, it's basically, well, people are afraid of the amount of violence that there is, but it's actually say, it's actually sending the message that um, violence as entertainment is sick. And, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of people who've sort of grown up in this, in this sort of reality TV um, mentality and where we turn on our television and we're watching the suffering of other people. And, and so I think that really resonates. And I also think the story is, you know, it's a story of rebellion. It's about the 99%. And that resonates too with people today. And Yeah, but I mean... I, I, and I totally say this in light of the fact that I acknowledge that it's totally walked this um, tightrope, yeah. but a film about children killing each other um, in a post-apocalyptic kind of world didn't strike me as this is going to go gangbusters with no. people like my kids who are just killing to me to go and see this because they just want to see it so badly. Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm just like, I, honestly, I couldn't be more thrilled that um, people are you know, liking and, and actually enjoying this film because it really was, um, you know, something that we all put a lot of ourselves into. Um, so it's, it's good that people enjoy it. Excellent. Well, it's been so great talking to you. Thank you so much. You too, Mike, as always. Really lovely to talk to you. And thank you for the opportunity to um, actually speak about the movie. Thanks to Sheena for taking the time to talk to us, not only this time, but many times over the years. It's been great when people are so generous with their time to share these kind of insights into the work they do. Are you an FX Insider? FX Insider is our special membership program that gives members access to special, more in-depth, and members-only content. Details can be found at fxguide.com by clicking the Insider tab at the top of the page. You've been listening to the FX Podcast. In addition to this podcast, we do two other audio podcasts. The VFX Show reviews visual effects in current releases, as well as going back and checking out classic films. The RC Podcast covers the ever-changing landscape of digital cinematography. And if you enjoyed this FX Podcast, we'd also recommend our weekly high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. You can find all of these, along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. We also have a sister site, fxphd.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training. Well, that'll do it for this FX podcast. This is Jeff Huser for my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery. We'll see you on the next FX podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.